How many of you guys are into uh, personal genealogies? <laughs> no one. Um, I think they can be quite fascinating. Uh, especially knowing, as far as I know, that we all are not native to this land. So in other words, we all have a history and somehow our families have made it here. Whether they would be traveling hundreds of miles or whether they'd be traveling thousands of miles, like is the case in my family. And I know many of yours. We all are immigrants to this country, as far as I know. Um, one reason why my interest is peak when it comes to genealogy is because I don't know much about my family. So we could go um, back to my great-grandparents. And all I know is that they existed and they lived at least one half of, of each couple lived in China, and the other half, I, th I believe, lived in Malaysia. That's all I know about them. And then when it comes to grandparents, uh, I never knew my grandfathers. One of them I never met. The other one I don't remember anything about. And then when it comes to my grandmothers, you know, you could say that we spoke to one another, uh, but really they couldn't understand me and I couldn't understand them. So around Christmas time, I was forced to... You know, pick up the phone and, and mimic my parents uh, as they told me, say hello in Chinese. Like, it's Nehoma. It's how are you doing? And I didn't even know really what that meant. I just mimicked the words. And I was talking really, I could have been talking to, you know, a stone on the other side of the, the line. Um, so it's interesting. You know, I got questions like, where did I come from? How exactly did my, my ancestors make it to Malaysia? I know some. They were runaways and whatnot. Uh, but, but even beyond those grandparents, do I possess certain traits that they possess? Or maybe, you know, of course the question then is for me, you know, maybe there's royal blood in my line. I have wondered that. Um, and I actually have met royalty. Have you guys ever met royalty? Uh, this gal that I had known, um, I met her, her brother, and her parents. They are Indonesian royalty. So they come from a certain line. Of course, now it, it, the rulership is basically non-existent because the, the forms of government changed. But she genuinely was of, royal, was of royalty. And uh, they're really proud of this thing. And it is a special thing whether or not the, that form of government is in place or not. They come from a royal bloodline. And today, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, continuing our series in as uh, the series called Jesus Christ, God Incarnate, we look at the genealogy of Christ from Matthew chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there. And Christians and non-Christians appreciate what's going on here in Matthew chapter 1 as he presents a history of Jesus Christ as heir to the throne. He's presenting Jesus Christ as heir to the throne, not by bloodline, but again, by heir. So who has the right to the throne? It's different than Matthew's genealogy, okay? So here he's presenting Jesus Christ as heir to the throne. Not by blood, uh, but by ownership. Okay, so to some of you guys, um, you know, when you guys hear the word genealogy, you are already trying to think about how to position yourself in the pews while appearing awake but really slumbering genealogies <laughs> let me encourage you guys if that is you uh try and take some notes that'll help you stay engaged this morning we asked a question matthew wants us to ask who is jesus christ 
the outline today as we answer that question is Jesus Christ is the awaited Messiah. Jesus Christ is the blessing to the nations and Jesus Christ is the reigning king. So as we answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? Point number one is Jesus is the awaited Messiah. Jesus is the blessing to the nations and Jesus Christ is the reigning king. I'll go ahead and read the genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen. And Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. <clears throat> Matthew was written a few decades after Jesus Christ had died and was resurrected. And Matthew is one of Jesus' followers, a disciple, a tax collector. And he set out to offer a written record of the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Naturally, you can understand why. You want to preserve the account, the eyewitnesses who... Uh, who remember Jesus Christ in their living memory are about to die. And so you have the disciples here penning records of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, which is why it's called a record of the genealogy in verse 1. You could also call it a record of origins. Where does this Jesus Christ come from? Or you could also call it a record of the history of Jesus Christ. So really these beginning words in English, um, two words in Greek, can serve as a title for the whole gospel. It is a record of where Jesus Christ came from, his origins, his genealogy, his history, which brings us to point number one. Who is Jesus? The genealogy tells us that Jesus Christ is the awaited Messiah. Uh, the other day, my kids asked me the question of what Jesus' last name was. Um, and many people think that Christ is nothing less than a surname or a cuss word. 
But in reality, it is the Greek word for a Hebrew Old Testament word that means Messiah or awaited one or chosen one. So this Messiah was spoken of in the Old Testament all throughout. And it says that he would come and deliver God's chosen people. So you can read the book of Isaiah. Um, For example, we read in our scripture reading a number of weeks back, Isaiah chapter 9, where it talks about this chosen one, this awaited one, would come and the government of the world would be upon his shoulders. And he would be the exalted one, the wonderful one. But people assume that his reign, so as this awaited one would come, they assume that he would bring God's people back together, restore their reign as an earthly king, right? A mere earthly king. You know, one who sets up shop, one who dominates, one who crushes their enemies. And Matthew 1 makes clear that this awaited one is Jesus the Messiah. So four times in chapter 1, three times in the section that we're looking at today, we see the word Christ. So right there in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then you can look at 16 there, the very end. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And then the very last verse that we're looking at, verse 17, from the deportation to Christ was 14 generations. Um, And it's interesting to see what kind of conflict launches the book. Oftentimes there's conflict launching the book. So if you go over and turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, go ahead and turn there. Notice who Herod wants to kill. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And of course, he inquires where the Christ is to be born so that he might try and kill him. And then you see the importance of uh, Jesus' identity as the Christ in Matthew chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. But here Jesus is helping Peter understand who his true identity is. And throughout Matthew, you're always wondering, who is this Jesus? And Jesus helps Peter, his own disciple, come to a, a clear understanding. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right, so there he's drawing them out. He's trying to help them come to clarity. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds by saying, on that Rock that foundation of your confession that I am the Christ. He then goes and builds his church. So you see how important Messiah is here? And then finally you have Pilate bringing Jesus before the crowds, before all of the people. And what does he say to them? He says, what shall I do then with this Jesus who is called Christ? And of course it's upon that proclamation of who he is that they then desire and want to crucify him. So you see the implications here of Jesus being Christ? He threatens world powers. So you have Herod who moves then to want to kill him. He then is going to build the church on this profession that he is actually the Messiah. And then you also have Peter there confessing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
So it's not just a statement of him being the chosen one. It's the chosen one then that actually has claim on the world. It's the chosen one who is also God, the son of the living God. God himself, Peter says. Um, now, some of you guys might be wondering and asking the question, okay, you know where the, 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 the story of the Gospels end. It ends with Jesus dying. So then what do we make of this claim then that he is the, the, the wonderful one who then holds, upholds the government of the universe on his shoulders when he's dead? It's an excellent question, and we're going to return to that a little bit later. For now, it's important to note who is Jesus. Point number one, <clears throat> restatement. He is the Christ, the awaited Messiah that God had promised all throughout the Old Testament. As he is the Messiah, he is also the blessing to nations. This is point number two, the blessing to nations. Look again at the beginning of the genealogy, chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so we're feeling the Jewishness of this book. If, you know, it, you're talking about the prophecies from the Old Testament. You're talking about a son of Abraham. You know, who's this Abraham guy that we today may not have anything necessarily in common with? It's fascinating, though, to recognize that the vast majority of the world's population today and throughout history has believed in an Abraham. A historical Abraham. So you can think of the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians. The vast majority of today's population and the vast majority of the population that's lived throughout the world. They all, we all, have believed in a, a Abraham. Now we might disagree between us, let's say, and the Muslims as to who exactly was born of Abraham and his wife. But nevertheless, we agree on an Abraham, a historical Abraham, from whom the nations of the world have come. Um, so here he says that Abraham, uh, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. What he's talking about also points us all the way back, sends us back to Genesis chapter 12, just 12 chapters into the Old Testament, where God had promised that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and that one from Abraham's line, so his seed, would then go on and be a blessing to all nations. This is what he says, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before he changed his name to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And then Genesis 22, when he restates this promise, he says this in verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So put yourself in the, in the Jews position. You come from the, the line of Abraham. God alone had chosen you, singled you out among all the other nations of the world so that he might display his glory. And he makes this promise to your people. But unfortunately, as we see in the New Testament, what the, the Israelites did is they really held on to the pride of their pedigree, so their line, and they lost sight of God and the heart behind all of his promises and the God behind all of the law. And so law was very much, it very much symbolized who we are as Jews. So if you get rid of the law, you, you're getting rid of our ethnicity. And you see this thing in world religions. So if any of you guys have friends who are, let's say, Buddhist from Thailand, to be Thai is to be Buddhist. 
And then so to convert from Buddhism, if you were a Thai person, is very much to reject your Thai ethnicity. And so you see there that religion and nationality are connected. And so it was for the Jews and the Israelites. But unfortunately, they had lost sight of God. And they relied on their ethnicity and the law for their salvation, obeying the commands of the law, that is Moses' law, children of Abraham. But they had no faith. Which is why John the Baptist in Matthew has a strong rebuke for these folks. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, so here they're presuming, they're relying on these things. We have Abraham as our father. And he responds to them. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if they are of the ethnic background or not. God will bring about the people of Abraham regardless. So in that moment, they should have realized that God defines a child of Abraham in a very different way than the nationalistic Jews did. And God rebukes them who rely on the pride of their pedigree. And John the Baptist goes on. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's a judgment term. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here it, it, you're, you're being, uh, Jesus is offering crystal clear understanding of who the people of God are. They are those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so going back to the promise that God gave in 22 verse 17 in Genesis. He says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The Bible says very clearly that this blessing, even though it finds its fulfillment, the promise finds its fulfillment thousands of years later, is Jesus Christ. He is the heir to the promise. Not necessarily those who come from his line are heirs to the promise, but all those who share the same faith of father Abraham. The requirement to receive the promise of God is not on pedigree, but repentance and faith in Jesus. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it's really clear. Paul says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that is us, if you are not a Jew, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Verse 16 reads, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. So you can imagine if you if you're looking at the genealogy, it's not time to snore. When you're looking at generation, he fathered this person, he fathered this person, he fathered this person. You're supposed to look at Abraham, who is the first person in the genealogy there in chapter, in verse 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And so he sends us, with every generation that moves forward, it sends us down time, the corridor of time, waiting for the promised one to come along. The blessing to the nations. Every generation you would be waiting. Is this going to be the blessing? Jacob? Is it going to be Judah? Is it going to be Perez? Is it going to be David? But generation after generation after generation. I mean, how, how, would, how, do you, how do you guys think you would have felt waiting for the promised seed of Abraham? You know, you might think his promise had failed here. Uh, by the way here, 
It says that in verse 17 that the generations from Abraham to David were 14. It actually isn't 14. And we're going to come back to that. What he's doing, he's topically arranging the generations so that he would make a point. And that's legitimate history. He's not saying, and all the generations, as in that ever lived. He's saying all the generations that I hear him writing down. And they knew their history. They were Jews who held to the Torah. So you're not pulling any fast ones on the Jews. I mean, they know exactly what David's doing. Or sorry, what Matthew's doing there. And that was a legitimate way of, of uh, recording history topically. So I think we would have thought that God's promises have failed. I mean, if you guys think about your own lives and what you're going through now, where is it that you believe that God has somehow failed you? Failed to take care of you? Failed to not fulfill his promise to be with you and to comfort you and to guide you? Where do you think he's failed you and let you down, maybe not exercising as much wisdom as you guys think he should have. Where do you suspect that he then is letting you down? I think the Jews felt that to some degree as they were waiting and waiting and waiting. So we know to some degree again what they thought. But the amazing thing is here that in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Savior born a baby, you have, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, the fulfillment of God's promises so you can see them culminating over history, generation after generation after generation. And finally, God is moving in the world in one particular place, in one particular manger, to bring about the blessing to the nations. This blessing is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That man cannot be saved on their own because we've rebelled against Jesus Christ. We've rebelled against the king, God himself dethroning him, knocking over his throne by us saying, really, you know, okay, you define what is good and bad. Even in the garden they did, as God said, uh, you know, eat from this tree and don't eat from, don't eat from this one. Adam and Eve knocks over their throne and in effect, as Don Carson says, you have the de-godding of God. And they then determine for themselves what is good and what is right. And you guys know this too. As the Lord's word says that we are to do certain things and not to do certain things. And yet we oftentimes, maybe even last night, wanted to renegotiate those boundaries of what is good for you according to the Lord's word. So we understand what this is like and we earn for ourselves just condemnation. And because of that, we are lost and we're sort of descending into the pit. The good news then is God sends Christ, the man, the God man, to then save men. And rescue those who are heading headlong into hell. Because he bears our sin and the wrath that we deserved on the cross. As he sheds our blood. Sheds his blood. We then can be free if we repent and believe. And turn and look to him as the blessing to the nations. As God's chosen one to bring his people together. That is the gospel. Forgiveness of sins. Right standing with God. The blessing to the nations is affected in Christ. The Messiah and Christ, the blessing to the nations. And, and you know that um, this has everything to do with us. Again, we aren't Jews and we know the Jewishness here as we're reading about their genealogy. Uh, but this has everything to do with us. Because the gospel knows no ethnic boundaries. So today we're going to baptize two people. One of them is a South African. And Christian, your ethnic heritage is a German, I forgot. German. So here we got German bloodline. And then we have South African, probably English, everything Dutch, 
Um, and we've got to baptize these people because they have professed faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The gospel knows no ethnic boundaries, which is why Jesus, the blessing to the nations, he says at the end of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus Christ is the blessing to nations and we are to bring him and the message of his good news to other people, just as those who have brought it to us. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the blessing to the nations. And the genealogy also shows us that he is the reigning king. This is point number three. Jesus Christ is the reigning king. The identity of Jesus, the reigning king, is highlighted brightest here uh, in the genealogy. It is explicit in the beginning, look there again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. David is the greatest king of Israel. But then it is made implicitly every single generation that moves forward. If so, there, if you look at chapter, uh, sorry, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David. So he's summarizing, right? I could go on and read this, but, uh, you know, I fear that there might be some challenges with us. Um, 17 says, all the generations listed, Matthew's talking about, Abraham to David were 14 generations. And then from David to the deportation, to Babylon, 14 generations. Now that's significant, because the deportation means that there is no king reigning over Israel, right? They are in exile, ruled by a different king. And then from the deportation to the Christ... 14 generations. So what in the world is going on with this 14 generations? The number 14, is it, is it Matthew's favorite number? Uh, you know, back in those days, um, the Hebrew language didn't have vowels. And their numeric system, the way that they numbered things, was based on letters. So if our letter A is the first letter of the alphabet, we would give that the numeric value of number 1. And so the Hebrews did that. And 14, if you add up the letters of David's name, DVD, it adds up to 14. So he's making a point here. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And then from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And then from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And so once again, he sends us all the way back to these promises, building on the Abrahamic promise, the blessing of the nations. He adds the blessing of kingship as Jesus is the king. All the way back from Abraham, as you're looking forward, going down the corridor of time, waiting for Jesus Christ to come about, you see, oh, very much so, that God, generation after generation, is bringing about his king. Regardless of where Israel is, whether they be experiencing the blessings of David and his kingdom, or whether they be suffering at the hands of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, And their people are getting wiped out. And their kings are getting their eyes plucked out, which is what was happening. And then even afterwards, as Israel is sent back to the promised land to reestablish their temple and just waiting. I mean, the temple was was paled in comparison to the temple built by Solomon. And they all knew that, which is why the people in Nehemiah and Ezra, they weep. The old men is because they remember living memory that the other temple was so great. But this one paled in comparison to that so here Christ, uh, the lord god is bringing about his great messiah the blessing to the nations who is king the reigning king first chronicles 
records the promise of God to David. And this is what he says. We've read this in the last couple of weeks as well. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, that is when he dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. That was around 1000 BC. And so they wait a thousand years waiting for this king. And even when he comes, they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. Here's another prophecy from Ezekiel 34, verse 31. And and notice here what the king then is going to do with his people in this prophecy. And I will set him up over them. One shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I... The Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And he's talking about David. David has been long been dead. So who is this David? It is Christ. Though David was a great king, the Messiah to come would be an even greater king. In fact, the greatest king that ever lived. And then where David was a shepherd, the king Messiah would shepherd not sheep, but his people, feeding them as he says that he is the bread of heaven. The one who offers drink to finally quench our thirst. And as you read the book of Matthew, you see who recognizes Jesus to be the son of David. The shepherd who will shepherd the people. It's the sick and the lost. So go ahead and turn to to chapter 9, verse 27. Go ahead and turn there. And you can easily find this data. You can, for example, just go on, let's say, Bible Gateway and type in son of David and search under the book of Matthew. And you, you yourselves can find out where... This term is used of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 9, verse 27. Two blind men, they're they're blind, okay? So they're sick. In other words, if the Jews touch them, then they they then would be unclean. Two blind men follow Jesus. They're following this Jew, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now, the story, this story here, doesn't, it does highlight faith, but it doesn't primarily highlight faith. It highlights something so much more than that. It's the object of the people's faith. It is Christ the King who stands right before them, the son of David, who is shepherding the lost people of Israel and even the lost Gentiles. You see the irony there? Matthew is full of irony. Blind people comprehend who Jesus is. And so they have faith in him. Contrast that with the people of the next story. So go ahead and look in Matthew chapter 9, the next story that follows. Okay, you see there, verse 32, as they were going away, Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Okay, this is the evil realm. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled. Okay, so you have blind men in the story before knowing who Jesus is. They see clearly. And then you've got the crowds who are marveling, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And then look at 34. Look who's denying this. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. So here he's attributing something good and holy and righteous to that of absolute evil. You see the irony here? Who are the true seeing? 
Who are those who really have eyes? It's the blind, it's the sick, it's those who have faith. But then who is it that are really blind? It's the Pharisees. And you would expect them, of all people, to know exactly who Jesus is. They are the ones who have the law. The ones whom God gave the promises to originally. They are the ones who worship in the temple. It highlights the fact that the Messiah is the blessing to the nations. Not to any particular ethnicity like these Pharisees. They should have known they were Jews. And yet they do not really believe. And they don't even accept Christ as the king. And then perhaps the most interesting place where the people affirm Jesus to be the son of God, at least where the language is used, is in the triumphal entry. Where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And keep in mind, this is Jerusalem where the king is supposed to reign. And he rides in on a donkey. Turn to Matthew 21. Go ahead and turn there. Twenty-one verses nine and ten, and this is what it says: the crowds are, you know, they're laying down their tunics, they're, they got palm branches. <clears throat> it says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" <clears throat> this is to Jesus. David's greater son, the one who rules forever. Of course, we know where he is riding to. He is riding to the king's throne. That would be a cross, and he's riding there on a donkey. You know, a lot of people find this this um, this son of David stuff and the triumphal and she really puzzling and surprising. You know, Christianity says that Christ rules and reigns forever, but he does so through his death. His rule and reign are so different than what the world expects, right? The world's rulers, they prove their reign by putting other people to death, right? Nebuchadnezzar, for example, he says, I have dreams and I want you guys to interpret them. You interpret them wrong, you die. And we even read this in the news. I read this morning that uh, there is one world leader, the dear leader he is called from North Korea, who is putting to death, you know, his ex-girlfriend. Putting to death those who are supposedly known for carousing. As if you can really legislate morality, you be holy or you die. Like that actually helps the heart. And then he's also executing one of his trusted advisors to his father. And then now he's dead. So a a worldly rule. I mean, that's what tyrants do, right? That's what world leaders, despots, they do. They're known for doing these things. So the world ruler proves his reign... By putting other people to death, yet this person's reign, this Christ's reign, proves his rule through dying himself. <clears throat> Jesus' rule and reign is marked by meekness and humble circumstances. It's strange. He's king, but he's born in a stable. And then he makes his way into the city of the king on a donkey, right? So where is his great stallion? Where is his sword? And his, and his battlefield armor that reveals to us that he has, in fact, defeated his enemies spilled blood on the battlefield but instead what does matthew's gospel say it says that the jews seized jesus they led him to face his accusers and they then crucified him and how does the all-powerful king respond we read of jesus christ's response it is silence determined humble silence so when the high priest brings him out to the crowds He says, the high priest said, it says, the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, 
the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. And what's the high priest's response? He says, you have uttered blasphemy, the Son of God, equating himself with God himself. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Then when Christ was before the crowds, remember the crowds are not there to champion his name, but they're out for blood. Pilate says to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. So you see his rule and his reign, it begins in obscurity. It's inaugurated as he dies on the cross and as he moves towards his crucifixion. It is inaugurated by meekness and humility. I mean, to the world, this leadership paradigm is absolutely unknown. Here we have the perfect, all-righteous king, worthy of all honor, power, and glory. Yet he dies a criminal's death. His citizens are those whom everyone did not expect. Not warriors to go and kill for him. Not the self-righteous, those who are actually, who understand themselves to be perfect. Not those who thought they were just and perfect, but the spiritually needy, the humble, the sick, the lost, that is all those who have faith in him, who see their need. And then we hear of the ethic of the kingdom, right? The laws of the kingdom. What does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Salvation in the kingdom is patterned after the work of the Savior. Just as the great king, the Messiah, the blessing to all nations forgives, so then we are to forgive those against us and to an infinite amount. Just as God has shown mercy to us, so then we are to show mercy to others. Just as our Savior died for us on the cross, so we then are to give up our lives for our brothers. So then we are to pick up our cross and walk in his footsteps. It's different from the world's ways. And just as it is with his disciples, so it is with his disciples today. And you understand how the world then views Christians as so weird, strange. I was hanging out with a friend the other day, and he was talking about how um, his father and mother had gotten divorced because of infidelity. Um, And then the mother goes and meets the mistress, just somehow runs into her. Can you imagine what that would be like? The mother is a believer. The husband is not a believer. So the mother of the believer goes and runs into the mistress. She's, she is the betrayed running into her betrayer. And unfortunately she sins and she kind of goes off the handle and she um, probably says some things that she, she regrets saying. And you know what she does? You know, Keep in mind she's a believer. You know what she goes and does? She finds the mistress and apologizes to her for going off the handle. For responding in an unchristian way. And she says that. That wasn't Christian of me to do. It was a sinful thing to do. And you know how the mistress responded? She's seeing this woman owned by the king, submitted to his rule, and following the ways of the kingdom of heaven. You know how she responds? She becomes a Christian. So she now is a Christian. Because of this woman's testimony to her. That should blow your mind. And I think it probably blows your friends' minds more than you realize to know that you are actually standing for God. Question is, are you really standing for God? Or are you silent in the home? Silent to your coworkers? Silent to your neighbors? 
silent to the people that you see every day at the same Starbucks you go to. This person here, she sees the ways of the kingdom. She sees really this subject of the king speaking wonders and glorious things about that king who dies on the cross for sins, who then can move on and forgive just as she has been forgiven. Interesting to know who despises such meekness and humility. This is what Adolf Hitler said. And some say he was a Christian, but make no mistake, he was not a Christian according to the Bible. He did publicly say he was a Christian, but he was no Christian in fact. He knew that this Christianity as the Bible presented it was not useful for getting ahead for world domination. Interesting there, the the non-Christian is reading the Bible and understands very clearly, okay, world domination is not called for here in the scriptures. But this is, what, this is what he says. You know, keep in mind, he's going for world domination. It has been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regards sacrifice for their fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan, that is, one who follows Islam. The Mohammedan religion, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. And they say if you convert away from Islam, it is punishable by death. He ends up saying, why did it have to be this Christianity with his meekness and flabbiness? Hitler couldn't stand the biblical Jesus, who was marked by humility and meekness, who suffered innocently even until death. It's telling, isn't it? I'm not saying that if you are not a Christian, you automatically become like Hitler. I am saying, though, that once you abandon this king and his law, you then better be really ready then to have your neighbors have an ethic and morality anywhere from Hitler and then beyond. Because once you're throwing out objective reality, objective law, the game is open for anyone to determine for themselves what is right and wrong. Hitler uh, best uh, defined good to be whatever best suited himself. That's the nature of sin. That's Adam and Eve's sin as well. Jesus Christ's rule and reign began in obscurity. It's inaugurated in weakness and humility. But make no mistake. Unfortunately, Hitler did. Make no mistake that in Christ there is absolute power and honor and glory in Jesus Christ. Even in his baby birth, he who owns everything has the power to give up everything. That's what he does when he takes on human flesh. While there might not have been millions gathered around the manger championing Christ's name, you know, he was born in obscurity. It doesn't really make much difference when from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective, you're looking down and seeing that that is Christ the king. And you might not have humans glorifying you at that particular moment. You have three wise men, people after you who want to kill you. But in that moment, yet all the hosts of heaven breaking out into chorus, right? This is what we looked at last last week. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. This is like the single that God records. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. And you have the hosts of, and hosts and hosts of angels declaring God's glory upon the birth of this king. And it's supposed to whet our appetite for the LP, the long play, the full album, Where, at the throne, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord. And you hear a little bit about what this eternal praise chorus goes on that goes into infinity. As John says in the book of Revelation, he says, I looked and I heard around the throne, right? He's born in obscurity, but believe me, he has all power that commands everywhere around him. 360 degrees. And if you're thinking about physics, you know, who knows how many other dimensions there are. Around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice. Not obscurity. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It just it just never ends. All those things that Christ is worthy of power and wealth. And wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. The day will come, just as Alex read to us from Psalm 96, where the king will reign and rule and make his judgment known to the universe. His reign is still marked by meekness and humility. And this is the judge, though, who is marked with power. Power over the body and soul, actually, which is what Matthew says which was what Jesus encourages us. He says, don't fear those who can kill the flesh, but fear the one who can destroy both body and the soul. While he came the first time to save, he comes the second to judge, which means that we wait for him. And as we wait, now is the time, if you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus and not to actually obey his commands, now is the time to turn and repent. So don't presume upon God's grace. It is true that he he goes generation after generation after generation after generation waiting for people to repent and turn and believe. But the Bible says that God is not slow in keeping his promise. That's what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. And he will, in fact, send his son again, not to save those who reject him but then to judge him and at the same time to save those who repent and believe so don't make the mistake of thinking that this baby born in the manger has no power loosing the chains of death after destroying death satan and sin and showing all to the world that death has no power over him is absolute power and waiting and holding back wrath and judgment itself is power and self-control and discipline and wisdom and yet at the same time he is holy just and righteous i'm sure you guys know what it's like to fly off the handle just as my friend's mother does that actually is not power even flying off the handle that results in killing is not power but when you demonstrate your power through waiting in wisdom and knowledge where you one day will come to save those who believe you and judge those who reject you, that is power. So we can look at this genealogy from Abraham, looking all the way down, generation after generation after generation. We see here God's providence, his faithfulness. We, woven throughout the history of Israel, is God bringing about his king in his timing. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. It's a genealogy that would provide and should provide 
years, if not a lifetime of devotional material, to see throughout the pages of history how Christ weaves, how God the Father weaves throughout their history, Christ the King, who comes and delivers by dying on the cross for our sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the King, the one who rules and reigns even now. So Lord, where we are tempted to think that you have somehow forgotten your promises and forgotten us, your people, even in the midst of suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would help us look to Jesus Christ, the King, who, whose reign was marked by meekness and humility. And we know, Lord, that all of your divine knowledge and power and care was showered upon Jesus Christ as he walked his way to the cross. In the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, we know that your eyes were still upon him. And, we, and you knew that when he died, that he would be risen from the grave according to your power and according to your might and plan. So, Lord, even though we might be stuck in our sort of darkness, bearing our cross, Lord, we pray that you would remind us that same, that same divine power, knowledge, and wisdom is shining upon us even now. And we know finally that even when we are dead, yet your hand will still be upon us as you raise us from the dead, as we follow in Jesus Christ's reign and train. Father, we pray that you would exalt Christ the King in our particular lives, and we thank you that even as we turn to the baptisms, uh, Lord, we declare that these people have been buried with you in your death and raised to new life, and now are free to live according to your power and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.